an extraordinary look inside the Fulton County Grand Jury Probe. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We have got a fully loaded episode for you guys today. So much is going on. Uh, starting with AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman talks about what she learned from the exclusive AJC interview along with her colleague Bill Rankin with five more Trump grand jurors. We're also hear from Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, why he thinks sports betting still could make it across the finish line this year. The latest on the push to restrict transgender youth from getting gender affirming surgery, which passed this week in the Georgia House. Your questions from the listener mailbag and our who's up and who's down for the week. <laughs> Patricia, we've got a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. That actually reminds me that I need to start thinking about my who's up and who's down. <laughs> These weeks go so fast. One of my who's ups is going to be Tamar Hallerman for breaking this monster story with Bill Rankin. So we can talk about that now. Amen. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We are joined by Tamar Hallerman, one half of the dynamic duo, along with Bill Rankin. Not only are they uh, stellar reporters, but they also are the hosts of the award-winning Breakdown podcast. I know, Tamar, you're going to have a lot more about this explosive series of interviews you had with the five special grand jurors in your podcast in the next few days. But we want to give listeners the overview right now. So before you launch into you know what we learned and your takeaways, what was it like to sit with five special grand jurors who were anonymous? As you guys mentioned, they're anonymous, but they were part of this, you know, incredible national story. You know, to me, they were like these celebrities, but I had no idea who they were. I had spent more than eight months of my life obsessively following any shred of information I could find about what they were up to. But I had no idea who they were, what they looked like, what they did for a living. And so it was wild to get to put faces to the numbers, not even to the names, but but faces to the numbers and to hear just about what that experience was like. You know, throughout this entire process, my colleague Bill and I, as we would record breakdown over these last few months, we'd always say, oh, if we could be flies on the wall. Well, Unfortunately, that didn't get to happen, but this was the the next best thing. And, and we sure did love hearing about their experiences. 
And Tamar, what were what was their demeanor like? They are, I almost think they would be going through some kind of PTSD or just trying to wrap their heads around everything. Um, how did you find them? And were y'all all in the room together at the same time? Yeah, we were all in the room together. We decided to do a group interview. Um, remember, these are ordinary folks. Most of them, I don't think, have ever talked to reporters before. And so I think there was a little bit of safety in numbers, perhaps. And it was clear that they really got to know each other. They were really friendly, kind of teasing each other, some inside jokes. Um, and that was really sweet to see the dynamic, especially given how different some of them were from one another, to kind of see that they did have this kinship. Um, but they definitely came in with some things that they wanted to come across, um, you know, to the world. Um, first of all, they wanted the world to kind of see how seriously they took all of this, especially in the aftermath of Emily Kors, the four women coming forward. And we've talked about this the last time I was on the show, but I think her demeanor and her tone really freaked people out. And a lot of the criticism was maybe this grand jury was not as serious as it should have been. They they didn't take this somber tone that this uh, subject matter required. And so they wanted to show that they took this really seriously and they understood the gravity of their assignment. Um, and they also showed just kind of how tough it was, this subject matter that, you know, they interviewed a ton of people like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, like Trisha Raffensperger, the wife of, of Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, about how their lives were turned upside down in the aftermath of some of this misinformation that was coming out after the election. Many of them had death threats and lots of vitriol thrown on them. I mean, Ruby Freeman had to leave her home. Um, and so they were really affected by some of the things that they heard, and they really brought a sense of humanity to it. And one of the other messages that they wanted to broadcast to the world was just the respect that they had, for especially the election workers and folks who um, we're helping keep our election safe. Tomorrow, I want to talk to you too about some of the revelations that you guys broke because uh, one of the biggest in this report, I encourage you all to read it, read the highlights, read the entire report because it is laden with big developments. But one of the biggest was that you were able to confirm with the grand jurors um, that not only, we already knew that that former President Trump called David Ralston, the late House Speaker, to encourage him to uh, to call for a special legislative session to, to overturn the results of the 2020 election. But what you were able to confirm was that there was actually a recording of that phone call. So now we know of three different recordings of Trump pressuring Georgia officials, and it was played before the jurors. Yeah, exactly. And as you mentioned, this is the third call. Of course, the infamous uh, leaked audio recording that you reported on first, Greg, uh, between Brad Raffensperger and Donald Trump, that was what helped launch this investigation back in early 2021. There was a second recording between Trump and Francis Watson, an elections investigator running an audit of absentee ballots. But you're right. We did not know that there were any more recordings of, of Trump talking to Georgia officials. And so that was really interesting to hear them describe this call. Um, one of the jurors mentioned that Ralston came off as this kind of masterful politician in all of it. Trump was pressing for him to convene a special session of the legislature. And the late speaker kind of shut him down by making Trump think that he was going to do what he wanted. The speaker said, I'll do whatever I think is right when it comes to the election or something along those lines that made Trump think, oh, OK, he's going to call a special session when the late speaker made no such commitment. And it seems like they ended the call on a really cordial note. Um, and of course, you know, Greg, as you've written about a lot, uh, the leaders did not call for a special session of the legislature, but it was some pretty masterful politicking on the late speaker's part. 
And Tamar, something else that just stood out in your story, um, without a doubt, was the grandeur who said that once the information all comes out, once the report becomes public, it will be massive, that there will just be sort of a massive amount of information and revelations that come out. Do you know what that juror was talking about specifically? I don't, but there are tea leaves that we can read here based on some of our previous reportings. Um, One of the conditions of the interview was that the jurors did not want to talk about what was in the report, and they actually are allowed to. Under Georgia law, it's pretty lenient in terms of what grand jurors are allowed to speak about after they're done. But it was clear that they didn't want to step on the work that DA Fonnie Willis is doing. But we do know, based on the interview that forewoman Emily Kors gave us, that they're going to recommend or they have recommended multiple indictments. Um, And she later told folks something like a dozen indictments. Um, We also know that the final report is short. It's only about nine pages long with an appendix. And so it appears like there's not going to be some really long narrative that summarizes their findings like the January 6th committee did. It's going to be really short and to the point and basically just lay out potential charges and who they recommend. It'll also lay out their votes. So we'll be able to see if votes were really lopsided, if a vast majority majority of them agreed that person X should be indicted for racketeering or solicitation of election fraud, or if it was a more closely divided vote. Um, So it's going to be pretty black and white. I was really intrigued at the section where you guys delved into the decision not to uh, subpoena or invite Donald Trump to come testify, because I know they didn't want to talk too much about the specifics when it came to Donald Trump. But one grand juror you talked to indicated that he regretted not sending the former president at least an invitation to come speak to the grand jurors. Yeah, that was an interesting revelation. First of all, when we heard that they had not called the former president, we assumed they would at least extend the invitation for him to come voluntarily, because at the very least, then you can kind of take away um, a potential talking point that hey, this was was all explainable, but you didn't give me the opportunity to say my piece. Of course, none of us were expecting that Donald Trump would have come to testify, or if he did, he would have pleaded the fifth a lot. But it was surprising that that prosecutors didn't do that. And and that was a point that one of the grand jurors was trying to make in why they they came forward. They objected to the way that Emily Kors, the forewoman, um, made it seem like the grand jury was the one who made that call not to not to bring him forward. And this juror said, no, it was mainly prosecutors. It, this was not something that was discussed among us. Um, but it was also interesting that 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 juror said, in light of what's happened, especially with the DA in Manhattan that invited Trump to come talk in that criminal inquiry, that, that now they wish they did that in Fulton. You said that a lot of them really wanted it to be known that they took this process really seriously. Did you have a sense that they were worried about how Emily Kors conducted the grand jury itself in terms of her role as forewoman? Obviously, they weren't happy with the way the press tour went, but did you feel like uh, this the process itself was serious and conducted in a way that they were pleased with? Yeah, overall, I think they were really proud of the work they did. And, they, and many talked about how they knew that this might be one of the most important things they are, were ever going to do in life and how they wanted to treat it accordingly. And in terms of the way that, that Emily Kors conducted herself as forewoman, no one seemed to really complain because the job of foreperson is not that extensive. You're signing subpoenas, you're administering the oath to witnesses before they, they give their testimony. But that's about it. It's otherwise a pretty democratic body. And when we sat down, they they made clear, you know, they they weren't there to drag 
Emily Kors down. But obviously, I think they were very upset by the way that folks were interpreting her comments. And maybe she was a little too frank and um, and maybe a little more, um, what's the term? Less. She came off a little with the wrong tone, maybe a little less serious than they wanted the world to I see. I think you said in this story, unprofessional. Yeah. And so I think they, they were upset at how it was being interpreted. And there were folks, especially Trump's Georgia-based legal team, that were saying, well, if the, the forewoman was presenting it that way, then this whole process must have been tainted and unprofessional. And that's really what they wanted to try and fight using this story. Tomorrow, what was your biggest surprise after you mentioned, you know, you've been You've been parsing through any tidbit we can possibly have about what's happening behind those closed doors. So when you finally got to sit down with these five special grand jurors, um, what was your what was the sort of the most surprising takeaway you had from that meeting? I mean, the first first off is how closely they paid attention and just how well versed they were in all of this stuff. Um, they remembered so much and they were so involved in all of it, and really you could see how much, how into it they were after eight months. And something that also hit home to me was just kind of how in in the current justice system that we have, that somebody like Emily Kors, a 30-year-old woman between jobs and in retail, how she could become the forewoman and lead this panel. And kind of extending to that, how these grand jurors were average people, um, I, I said I wouldn't describe them. I, they don't want their identities to be known, but just the diversity in terms of ages, races, um, circumstances in life. Um, it was pretty amazing to see um, just the sheer variety of it and how still they were able to kind of come together and take this seriously. And like I said, just the affection that they had for another. They all, like I said, understood the gravity of what they were doing. But it was just kind of an amazing little symbol of the justice system to see like wow, these everyday people who work really everyday jobs, how they could be such a critical part of what might be one of the most important grand juries to have ever met in this country. A real public service, isn't it? For sure. Well, Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, what's next? What do you? What, what's the next milestone? Uh, because Fannie Willis said imminent decisions. <laughs> imminent for a prosecutor means is very different than imminent for us reporters who feel like imminent is three minutes. Um, but what, what, are you, what are you watching for next? Do you have any update on the timeline? Well, we're waiting for the DA to announce her next steps. As you mentioned, she said decisions were imminent back in the end of January. We're still holding our breath uh, six weeks later. So we'll wait and see. Um, there is There are two sets of grand juries that are meeting now. As, are, as is the case in Fulton County at any given moment in time, two regular grand juries that are hearing all sorts of felony cases on any given day. Each meets twice a week. One is Monday, Tuesday. The other is Thursday, Friday. And they are hearing every type of felony. They're hearing murders, fires, arson, trespass, or you know, kidnapping, that kind of stuff. And so in theory, the DA could present evidence if she wants to seek indictments in this case. She could present evidence whenever she wants. Um... My understanding is that that hasn't happened yet. Um, And who knows? It could be days. It could be weeks. It could be months. The sense I'm getting talking to folks is that it might be a little bit later this spring, but we will be waiting to hear an announcement. Stay tuned. And while we're waiting, Breakdown Episode 27, Inside the Special Grand Jury, comes out on Monday. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime.
I want to tackle another big development that happened this week. It happened Thursday in the Georgia House. This was something of a surprise. First, listeners of the show know we focused most of, most of our last episode on legislation that would prevent medical professionals from giving transgender children certain hormones or surgical treatment. Well, in a surprise move, it came up for a floor vote and passed after a few hours of very emotional debate. Uh, let's listen to State Representative Carla Drenner. She's the first openly gay member of the Georgia legislature, and she delivered this very emotional message to transgender youth in Georgia. Please don't lose hope. Please don't give up. Please don't kill yourself. This world is worth it. We need you. Patricia, you could hear a pin drop in the Georgia House during this, and, and th- she was not the only one to, uh, to, to have that sort of message. Um, it was a very, very fraught debate, and it's headed for Senate confirmation in the next few days, and pretty soon we imagine Governor Kemp's desk. Yeah, and you know, I've been giving a lot of thought as to why transgender issues are suddenly taking center stage, not just in Georgia, but in legislatures all around the country. And um, it's happening as we are also seeing um, almost the total evaporation of legislation related to abortion restrictions or gun restrictions. There just aren't that many social issues, wedge issues left on the table here in Georgia. Republicans have been um, running the state for um, long enough now that they have passed nearly every abortion restriction that is left to pass. They've been able to loosen most gun restrictions. You can now carry a gun in most places in Georgia, and you don't need a permit to carry weapons and firearms. Um, They've passed so many of the social issues that have been front and center for them that transgender issues have really exploded on the far right. And now that certainly has come to the Georgia legislature. Um, Similar bills are passing all across the country. More than 400 transgender bills have been introduced in legislatures around uh, the United States just this session alone. And you can really feel it is the animating issue on the right. And we are uh, seeing here in Georgia this week, what that looks like when it's put into, when it's put into law. I think you're exactly right. In the absence of new debates over gun expansions or abortion limits or religious liberty, or a lot of the don't say gay, which is the moniker for legislation that would restrict what teachers can say about gender and sex uh, in, in their classrooms, in, in the absence of a lot of those measures, which all which all failed uh, to pass uh, the legislative deadline last week, you're seeing this measure in Georgia move forward. And for the folks who have ever been to a Herschel Walker rally, you know why, right? Because that issue was front and center, and it was front and center to him for a reason, because they felt like that was an animating uh, issue for, for conservative voters, and one that would bleed over to a more moderate electorate. Um, supporters of these measures say it protects children from taking steps towards gender transition, that are permanent, that they can't take back. Democrats were quick to warn, especially those who are in suburban areas that could be more competitive, that they will pay a price in 2024 for voting for this measure. Let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We are not only the host of this podcast, we're also two of the three authors, along with our Washington correspondent colleague, Tia Mitchell, of the Morning Joel newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That is subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, the next big story we have, and this is another major development, uh, it involves sports betting. We've said on this podcast, even though it has appeared to have long odds, there is still a chance for sports betting legislation to pass. Well, I think the chances, I think the odds got a, got a little less long. <laughs> the, the, uh, it, it might be the, uh, the favorite now because not only did House Speaker John Burns last week open the door to the idea at the Atlanta Press Club, Thursday, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones told me he's planning to bring this issue for a vote. It's one of those things that it's a known fact. It can generate um, you know, tens of millions of dollars. It's legal in 36 other states. And it is something that we know is people partake in. And why are we missing out on the opportunity to be under the Georgia lottery to uh, not only regulate it, but also um, collect the the fees off of it? Asked the lieutenant governor, is this was the year to pass this or will this be something that will be delayed until next session? I want to have, you know, a, a, a verdict, so to speak, on the floor. And it'll, we either put it to bed where we won't have to talk about it anymore or we'll get it passed and, and it'll just be like picking up $75 million in the street, you know. <laughs> Patricia, it's a reminder, you never say never under the gold dome until that final gavel is banged. First of all, who doesn't want to pick up $75 million in the street? That is, um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's one way to sell it. Um, another way to sell it is by dangling education money out there for members. Um, that is always the way that these gambling bills, particularly the lottery, really started to get traction was to say, well, I know you might have mixed feelings about gambling, but what if we could fully fund hope? And what's super important here is that when the bill failed earlier on the Senate floor, the sports uh, sports betting bill, it did not fail completely. It did not gain a two-thirds majority that would have been needed for a constitutional amendment, but that bill did get a majority of votes. So we knew at the time that majority support was in the chamber for sports betting, just not for that two-thirds. This bill, because Burt Jones is saying it would not require a constitutional amendment, it's it could be done under the lottery, that's a simple majority, and that is a winning proposition. I will say also, 
that any time either chamber goes to the effort of doing something called stripping, which is what has happened here, when you go into a bill, for example, in this case, the soapbox derby bill, and then strip out the language and replace that with totally different language, you know that somebody with some real juice has gotten involved and really wants a bill to pass. This takes this takes some effort, no small effort to go in and strip a bill and replace it with different language. And the fact that it's sports betting, the fact that they have majority support in the Senate chamber. Greg, I stand corrected. I was extremely skeptical on this just two days ago, but now I think it looks um looks a lot stronger than it did before. And so a state house correspondent for the AJC My Probo. She was very, very cynical about it. Um, especially, and I don't blame either of you, because when you listen to Speaker Burns just last week, just after crossover day, he basically said the House has no appetite to move forward. He has since rolled back those comments, um, saying that he was still open to the ideas too. I know the governor's office is also involved. So I think this thing is on the fast track. We will see. Um, but folks in the House. It never came up for a vote in the House on crossover day last week, but proponents said it had the votes. It had a majority of the votes needed. And one more thing before we move on, Patricia, is that um, you mentioned that new revenue for education. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones specifically mentioned a few things to me, expanding the HOPE grant to technical colleges and this debate we've been talking about, about whether or not to fully fund the HOPE scholarship, to, to once again restore 100% tuition funding for HOPE scholarship recipients, which was, you know, which was ended back in 2011. And Governor Kemp wants to restore it. This is the sort of thing that could uh, give it some extra juice. If you say, well, sports betting can help in the two-tiered system and fully fund the HOPE scholarship, uh, that, might, that might be enough for some lawmakers to get it across the finish line. Agreed. Agreed. Again, it's that sweetener, you know, the sweetener that you can go in there with um, and there, there might be nothing else more popular in the state house and Senate than the hope scholarship. They have had to um, whittle away at some of that funding because it's such a massive program. It costs a lot to deliver for Georgia students. Um, I think it is universally accepted that the hope scholarship has been kind of one of the most um, successful public policy programs in the state. Um, it is getting credit for not just educating Georgia students, but for making Georgia a much more attractive place for companies to relocate. It has improved and just expanded all kinds of things about those colleges. You, the tippy top tier of students are at those colleges. And so um, the Hope Scholarship is, if you can say to somebody, what would you like to do to make the most popular thing in the state work even better? they would say just about anything. So I think um, this does feel like it's on the fast track now. Stay tuned. Well, now it is time for the listener mailbag. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast anytime. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Producer Shaney B is standing by. And you know, since we've been recording this podcast, somebody just made it under the radar. This is unscreened, unfiltered. Uh, it looks like it's a phone call from Nate. That's all I know. Hey, Greg and Patricia, this is Nate. I am calling from the car. And I was wondering uh, if you could provide a little perspective on how Georgia's relatively short 40-day lawmaking session 
may change the process. Um, that's always fascinated me. I know other states kind of have year-round systems or longer systems. So, yeah, um, just curious about that. Thanks for the show. Uh, love it. Uh, and go Jackets. Bye-bye. <laughs> Nate, that's such a good question, except for the whole go Jackets part. Um, you know, some states have, uh, you know, have longer sessions. Some states have shorter sessions. In the end, though, in most states, including Georgia, lawmakers wait till the very last moments to get their actually work done. And so oftentimes when lawmakers are asked, well, would you like an 80-day session? Would you like a 20-day session? They often say the answer is the same. They would still wait until the very last moments to get the lion's share of the work done. We certainly saw that. Uh, a couple of days ago with the crossover day legislative deadline where both chambers worked way into the late hours of the night, um, right before midnight in the house um, to pass a number of bills. Um, also remember in Georgia, these are citizen legislators. Um, you know, some of them are retired, you know, and have more time on their hands, but a lot of, a lot of lawmakers go back to their businesses, whether it be their, their, you know, small, small businesses they own or law practices or um, other jobs and extending that session would make it even harder for them uh, to, to have these dual roles. And it's very important to have lawmakers who, who are uh, the, the founders of the Georgia Constitution felt like it was very important um, to have lawmakers who have those dual roles, who still are in touch with their communities. Yes, they also get paid practically nothing. So they all need to have other jobs outside of uh, the legislature. (laughs) Um, Now, some of the members um, in if they're committee chairs or in the leadership, particularly the speaker, um, the heads of the appropriations committees, they are working um, pretty much all year round. They are doing meetings. They're back and forth to the Capitol. They're going around the state to visit agencies or visit um, kind of outposts to see how it's going for states. Uh, state-owned or state-operated properties and employees. So some of the lawmakers do work more than just the 40-day session. They can also come into a special session if there is some kind of an emergency. So they have some some flexibility on when they're in and out. But I think most lawmakers would tell you the 40 days is just about right for them. They, um, They all work under a deadline, as you said, and sometimes it's that looming day 39 that really gets them <laughs> into first gear. So um, I think the 40 day session is just about right for most of them. Lawmakers are just like the rest of us. <laughs> They're procrastinators. <laughs> Shannon B, what else we got? Okay. Our next call comes from Ellen. She has a question about redistricting. Are there still guidelines or things that must be met to meet to be an approved letter? And the reason I'm asking is because my understanding is that on the federal level, with the districts for the Congress, it must be very close. They'd like it to be absolutely even, but there certainly is some wiggle room. I'm wondering what that wiggle room is because it looks like Georgia wiggled a lot, really making some voters obviously having a more powerful voter than others because there's a difference of over 175,000 in terms of the population between those that got very low numbers and those that got very high numbers. So I'm wondering, is there a guideline and did Georgia meet it? Good question. There, there are guidelines uh, and they can get excruciatingly technical. Um, and of course, you know, the way that these political lines are, are drawn can help decide whether Republicans or Democrats control the legislature, control the congressional delegation, control county commissions, you name it. Because even though uh, in the 2020 election, um, you know, it was as narrow as it could be, right? 11,000 votes. Republicans redrew the lines. 
to have safe majorities in the Georgia legislature and the congressional delegation. And they can point at Democrats who a few decades ago did the exact same thing. There are certain things that the districts have to have. Um, the the late, latest U.S. Census tally puts the state's population at roughly almost, almost 11 million people. And districts must have an equal number of people, which means there should be about 765,000 people in a congressional district, 191,000 people in a state Senate district, and 60,000 people in a state House district. From there, lawmakers have to try to make the districts compact and ensure demographic groups have representation. But of course, that still gives whoever's in control the latitude to draw maps in their favor. And there's also, of course, federal protections guarding against racial gerrymandering as well. Um, so it's a very complicated process. We won't see it again for another, I don't know, eight, nine years. But we just went through it, and it was a, it was a, a drawn-out and very fraught debate. Yes. And lawmakers now have at their disposal very um, sensitive and specific computer programs that sort of get all of the inputs of the federal requirements and then sort of spit out districts that are um, uh, that will meet those requirements. Then they also will sometimes go in and make very small or specific changes based on who represents that district. Um, if what kind of leeway they're looking for for that member to either get easily reelected or not so easily reelected. Um, there's just a ton that goes into it. It does have to meet sort of federal baseline standards, though, to Greg's point. Um, and while what we saw here in Georgia was a huge advantage to the Republicans because the Republicans were drawing the lines, if you go to a state like New York or California where Democrats are drawing the lines, you really will see the exact opposite. So it really is the case of you know, the winners make the rules at this point. And so uh, Republicans continue to have the advantage. And when you have that partisan advantage in gerrymandering, that does give the parties in charge the ability to really stretch out the period of time when they think they'll be able to hold control of the state. I think Republicans understand that the demographics in Georgia are not in their favor right now. So they've been able to sort of stave off and strategize um, how they can remain in power the longest, while they also adjust their own politics to meet the changing face of Georgia as well. Okay, from redistricting to de-annexation, here's a question from Patrick in Athens. I just finished reading the article about the de-annexation movement in Nableton. Um, I was just curious, you know, what prospects that bill has in the legislature and, you know, if that bill was successful, do you think that could possibly give an additional boost to the Buckhead cityhood movement. Now, that's a similar situation, you know, trying to de-annex part of Atlanta. So just thought, you know, what the relationship between those two cases were. You could say more about that. Thanks. So the city of Mableton bill, it's so interesting. This is one of those cityhood efforts. It's one of several that passed the General Assembly last year, but only one of which in Cobb County actually got approval from voters. The problem is that a number of new residents in the new city of Mableton don't want to be there. They don't want to be in the new city of Mableton. So state representative Dave Wilkerson has brought a bill to the legislature to de-annex a portion of Mableton. Those residents said either they don't want to be in the new city or they didn't even know they would be in the new city. So he's introduced that bill. Um, we'll have to see what the legislature does with it. It is, however, very different from the Buckhead City bill. So I don't think this is going to give rise um, or new legs to Buckhead City because what Buckhead City was trying to do 
is de-annex a portion of Atlanta and create a new city. Mableton is to de-annex a portion of the city of Mableton back into unincorporated Cobb County. To make a long story short, that's been described to me. The differences logistically, it's the difference between like addition and college level calculus. It's just much, much harder to create a new city out of an existing city for a lot of reasons. And so um, will it pass? We'll have to see. Will it give legs to the Buckhead City movement? No. Per- I think that's perfectly said. Shane, what else we got? All right. We've had some great calls this week. Let's um, let's wrap it up here with Amy in Sandy Springs, who has a question and a comment. My first thing is my comment. I really appreciated your crossover podcast this past week and your interview while you were at the Capitol. That was very enlightening for me as a Georgian. I hope that you do it again. And my question is, when is the next time our legislature will get together and deal with bills? And what is the status of the current bill that has to do with DAs possibly being removed by the legislature and governor, even though they're voted upon by the constituents? Thank you. Y'all are terrific. Oh, man, we're blushing. <laughs> we need more calls like that one. Well, uh, all credit goes to Shaney B, who uh, put in the hours. And we want to do more of those episodes. And we are planning on doing another one of those special episodes for Signy Die, the last day of the legislative session at the end of March. But the, for the other part of the question, when does this happen? Well, it happened. There's 40 days legislative session. Um, not all of them are as dramatic or action-packed as those big deadlines that we talk about, like Crossover Day or Signy Die. Um, but often there's a lot of a lot of things going on, even when it seems like it's a slow day of the legislative session. Lawmakers are in pretty much Mondays through Thursdays. They've been taking Fridays, not off because there's a lot of committee hearings oftentimes on those days. But uh, those days seem to be tend to be a little bit slower than the rest. Um, to your other question about the fate of the prosecutorial oversight bill, different versions of this of these measures have passed both chambers. Uh, they have not yet reached a consensus on some very key issues, including who will make up these panels. Um, the Senate version has a very different idea for prosecutor oversight panel as the House version. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of other differences. Um, so over the next couple of days, lawmakers will work to hash out a compromise between the Senate and House version. If they can't, the bill doesn't go anywhere. But if they can, um, that it will cross the finish line. And I suspect the latter because you've got You've got a lot of power players under the gold dome who all support this. The governor, lieutenant governor, the House Speaker, all three of them have said positive things about these this measure passing. So when you have that sort of institutional force behind it, it's hard for just, just to imagine it not making it across the finish line. But we will stay tuned. Now it is time for Who's Up and Who's Down. Patricia, since we always like to end on a high note, Who is your who's down for the week? My who's down for the week are Democrats in the Georgia General Assembly. The debate on the transgender bill this week was a real reminder that no matter how strongly Democrats feel about an issue, no matter how passionate they are, no matter how much they feel like they have the facts on their side, um, they just do not have the votes in the state house and Senate to get anything done that they want to get done, um, particularly in these cultural issues. They can partner with Republicans on other things, but when it comes to um, gun safety or these transgender bills or abortion bills, 
they just don't have any pull in the legislature right now. And they just got completely defeated on this transgender bill. They made lots of arguments against it. And it just just didn't matter at the end of the day. My who's down are soapbox derby fans <laughs> because <laughs> no kidding. legislation that would that would make the Southeast soapbox derby, the official Georgia soapbox derby got co-opted uh, much to the chagrin. I shouldn't laugh about it because there, there, there was a lot of emotion wrapped into it, but um, much to the chagrin of the lawmaker who was pushing that legislation and turned into a sports betting, betting measure. A lot of times this happens near the end of the session where we call them vehicles. It's a very weird way of saying it, but basically any bill that involves a code section that could be affected by another bill could just be completely rewritten. So oftentimes we see that uh, a lot. And in this case, a measure that would that would honor this, uh, this soapbox competition down in the Savannah area is no longer now. It has turned into one of the most divisive or at least the most closely watched bills under the Gold Dome for sports betting. Patricia, who's your who's up? My who's up for the week is Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. I really did feel like the Emily Coors interviews that she gave um, kind of all across the country really felt like it damaged the image of the grand jury process because she was so loosey-goosey, because she was laughing and kind of maybe nervously giggling at some points. It just didn't make it seem like it was a very serious process process. Um, however, I do feel like the interviews that um, that Tamar and Bill Rankin got this week with the five other grand jurors really did change the outside view of that process. They were very, they were clearly very serious, took their work seriously. And to me, uh, really, uh, at least uh, neutralized those Emily Kors interviews. So I think it puts Bonnie Willis back on equal footing as far as the outside opinion of the special grand jury process. My who's up for the week is the great Scott Slade, the WSB legend who is retired, but not fully retired. He's, he's still up to something. We're not sure what it will be, but we're excited to find out whatever it was. Um, we're excited to find out whatever it will be, but he was inducted this week into the Georgia Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame, along with four other very worthy inductees. It was an honor to be there to help celebrate his amazing tenure at WSB as one of the most listened to broadcasters on the planet. So my who's up for the week is the great Scott Slade. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. 
AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.